This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. So we've been talking about two things. We've been talking about having an encounter with the Lord. And then we've been talking about the life that comes after that. And we decided last week that it's not one or the other, but it's one then the other. Encounter plus lifestyle equals the kingdom way. That's the formula. Encounter plus lifestyle equals the kingdom way. I'm not sure it's possible to have a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ that's full of revelation, full of his spirit, full of light and hope, and not be changed. And if you're changed, then you're going to live differently than you did before. So if there's someone who declares, I'm a Christian, but you don't see a change, a shift from the way they lived before they started to declare, I'm a Christian, then I think you can question the authenticity of the encounter. Okay, so we'll move on past that. This statement is the exclamation point on the whole business. And this statement was made by the Apostle Paul. And this leaves us without an argument as to whether or not this whole thing is about lifestyle, about a method and a manner of living and thinking and functioning day by day. This statement is going to leave us without any question at all about whether when we have an encounter, we're done. This statement is going to tell us unequivocally that once you've had the encounter, Everything changes. Everything changes. And it changes in, from the inside out. I can't wait to have communion on Easter Sunday. I love to do communion because, and, the, and ironically, this is the reason we don't do it so often, is because I don't want it to become meaningless or just a ritual that people don't really stop and think about, what is this? What does it mean? I like to do it a couple, three times a year, and when we do it, it really be impactful and us really be reminded of what's going on here. Because the message of communion is that we take in the Lord and He changes us from the inside out. That's the message. That's how it works. It's transformation from the inside out. So here's the statement. I have been crucified with Christ. That's the encounter. Okay. I met him face to face. I actually participated. Now, hang with me because we're going to get to what this looks like really in a few minutes. I participated in his crucifixion with him. I was a willing participant. I have been crucified with Christ. Now comes what happens after the encounter. So, 
that I no longer live. Okay? Reinforcing what we just said, that the old life is done and all things have become new. Shared that scripture last week. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Inside and out, all things have become new. Post-encounter. Post-participation in his crucifixion. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. It's a new life, and it's not even my life anymore. It's his life being lived out through me. Now listen, the life that I now, post-encounter, live where? What's it say? What's it say? In the body. What body? This body and the body of Christ. I'm still here. Pinch me. I'm still here. Flesh, bone, blood. Still here drawing in breath on planet earth. Still here walking, moving, talking. The life I now live in this body, but now also in the body of Christ, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is what you call transformation from the inside out. I don't live it the way I used to live it. See, the way I used to live it was by faith in the ideas that Jeff Deal had by the and those ideas may have come from other people actually they are going to come from other people they're going to come from other sources they're going to come from family members they're going to come in the educational institutions I attend they're going to come in the workplace. They're going to come when I watch the news. They're going to come when I listen to the radio. They're going to come when I listen to music, watch movies. They're going to come from all sorts of different places, but they are all ideas that are pumped into me, and then some of them I embrace and I agree with, and so they become my ideas and pre-encounter, I live according to faith in those ideas. Unfortunately, this won't be news to anybody who's ever been here before, because I say this until it just echoes around in our brains. My best idea is only good enough to kill me. So as long as I decide that I'm going to live by my own ideas, I am choosing death. You understand? I'm choosing death because I'm exalting 
my ideas above his ideas. I am putting myself as a God above him as God, which is the number one commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. First and foremost, you yourself. But now, the good news, now that I've had an encounter, now that I no longer live, now that Christ lives in me, the life that I'm still living in this body, but now in his body as well, I live no longer by faith in myself, but by faith in the Son of God. That is the salvation message. That is the transformation message. That is the message of discipleship. That is the message of the kingdom way. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Exclamation point. So, last week we talked about three people. Let's revisit them real quick. Add a couple of things we didn't have time for last week. We talked about a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and she was brought to Jesus by the religious leaders, by the church people. She was thrown down at his feet. He was in the temple teaching. And they brought her in, they threw her down, and they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The Mosaic law says that she's supposed to be stoned to death. By the way, the Mosaic law said that both her and the man she was committing adultery with were supposed to be stoned to death. But for some reason, as often happens, both parties are guilty, but, no, but both parties are not viewed as guilty. What do you say, Jesus? What do you say, Here's what the law of Moses, see, they're trying to pit him against their religious forefathers, against their heritage, against the commandments, the teachings, the laws that God himself gave to Moses. Well, what do you say? They're trying to find some contradiction. They're trying to be able to accuse him of heresy or blasphemy. What do you say? And he kneels down and he draws in the dirt with his finger And they continue to press the issue, and finally he looks up and says, okay, let whoever's in the room who does not have any sin in your life throw the first stone. And one by one they leave the room, and there's nobody left in the room but him and her. And he looks at her and says, where are the people who are accusing you? And she says, there's nobody. And he says, well, I don't accuse you either. But you go your way, you've had an encounter, you go your way and you enter the lifestyle, which is that you stop sinning on purpose. Some people, some historians say that they believe this woman could have been Mary Magdalene. It's not in the Bible, I don't know. It's in some documents, it's not in others. It's not in the Gospels, it's not in the New Testament that it was her. But for the sake of spiritual imagination, what if it was her? Because you know that she shows up later, right? You know that Mary Magdalene 
shows up and is one of a very, very tiny number of people that is actually there at the crucifixion, not afraid to be there, not cowardice and running away, but right there witnessing the crucifixion of her Savior. And we know that she likely was the first human being to see him after his resurrection. It would be a really cool thing if this was her. Because whether it was or wasn't, this is what it's supposed to look like. That you have an encounter, that you're issued a charge. Now that you've had an encounter, now you step across the threshold and you begin to walk the lifelong journey known as the way. Which means that when the difficult times come and when the challenges arise and when, when I'm about to go to the cross and when I'm hanging on a cross and when your own life is at risk for being a follower of mine, you're going to be there anyway. And you're going to see me once I have died and come out of that grave. You're going to see me walking and breathing and you're going to hear my voice. That's what it's supposed to look like. Then we talked about this guy that's called the rich young ruler who has an encounter. He comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the laws. Don't kill anybody. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Just, just mind that list of things that you're supposed to do and not do. He says, well, I know all that and I do all of that. Is that all there is to it? And Jesus says, well, in your case, because you've exalted a few ideas above God's idea for your life, in your case, go and sell everything you have and give the money to wait, away to the poor and then come and follow me because I don't believe you're in position to follow me right now as long as you have all that junk piled up in your life. And what happened to the young man? He went away sorrowful because he did not think he could afford to give up his own ideas for his life in favor of God's idea. And what's the end result of that? Well, we don't know. He's never mentioned again, but I will tell you this. He may have lived out his days and had all his money and had all his stuff and enjoyed the comfortable life and the good life and just relished in, and reveled in his own ideas. But one day, you know what happens? You breathe out your last breath and you're gone from here and then you have to deal with whether or not you stepped over the threshold at the encounter and entered the kingdom way because this life is a vapor it's a whiff it's here now and it's going to be gone pretty soon in, in, in terms of eternity it's pretty soon for all of us then it'll be all about, did I live in the kingdom way or did I exalt my own ideas? So you have the good stories and you have the bad stories. 
And then we had this man named Nicodemus, which is a really, really cool story. He's a smart guy. He's an educated guy. He's a religious guy. He's a, a leader in the church. Very knowledgeable. He knows the law. There's no reason for him to come to Jesus asking just for information about the Scriptures. He already has all the information. And it's not about information, and that's the whole point. It's about transformation, not information. And he comes to Jesus at nighttime probably because he doesn't want anybody to see him. In his position and with his reputation, it could be risky for him to come to Jesus in the middle of the day and people to see him. So he comes to him at night, has a pretty lengthy conversation with him about how to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, well, you have to be born again. Well, what does that mean? I can't enter again into my mother's womb and be born again. What do you mean? He says, well, everybody who wants to enter the kingdom has to be born of the water and born of the Spirit. In other words, you're born of your mother, but then there is another birth that's required, and that's a birth of the Spirit. The encounter, birth. And it's to this man that Jesus gives the great gospel declaration for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. Is that the end of it? Salvation happens and that's the end of it? Oh, no. You see, when Jesus is on trial... And all the other religious leaders are pointing fingers and accusing and insulting and threatening and demanding that he be killed. There's one religious leader, one Pharisee that speaks up and says, listen, this is not the way you do it. He's coming to Jesus' defense. Is this what we do? Do we accuse? Do we put on trial? Do we convict? Do we condemn a man without even having evidence that he's done anything wrong? It's very risky to challenge the system in that way. But you know what, folks? I don't want to get on a soapbox, and I've been accused of being too critical of this and that and the other. If we're not bold enough and willing enough to challenge a system that's wrong, then we need to go find something else to do. If it's wrong, it's wrong, and we have a responsibility to challenge it. Now, we have no responsibility to get caught up in a lot of theological arguments and bantering back and forth and apologetics and the, that sucks up all our time, time that we should be using doing kingdom work. But we do have a huge responsibility to preach and teach and represent what is right and to counter what is wrong, whether it's inside the church or outside. And that's what Nicodemus does. He challenges it right there. In the middle of all his religious cronies, he said, You're wrong! This man has done nothing wrong. You have no evidence against him. How can you con uh, convict him of things that you're saying that he actually never did? But of course we know that they 
persisted until they got what they wanted. So that's the second time we see Nicodemus, but there's a third time. He shows up again. It's after Jesus has died on the cross. And they take down his body, and he doesn't, yeah, his family hasn't gone and bought a plot. They have nowhere to bury him. What are they going to do? And a man named Joseph, who's a wealthy man, he's also a religious man. He steps up and says, I'm going to take care of the arrangements. I'm going to take care of his body. I'm going to provide a grave for him. And I'm going to make sure that things are done properly. And guess who shows up at his side? Nicodemus. Let me tell you what doesn't happen with a man like Nicodemus. When he encountered Jesus, if, there, if that was not the beginning of transformation, then he does not show up at the trial arguing Jesus' case. Let me tell you what else does not happen. If when Nicodemus has an encounter with Jesus, if that was a transformational encounter, then he does not show up after Jesus has been crucified, offering to help take care of the details and make sure he's handled properly and make sure the expenses are taken care of. This man was, had moved in to the process of transformation that started with his encounter in the middle of the night, and now he's living it out day by day. And we're going to add a third person to consider today. And this guy is going to teach us so much about how this works. I don't know if we'll finish him up today or not. If we don't, it's all right. I bet if I ask some of you who you thought I was going to mention, you could tell me already. We're going to talk about a man named Simon Peter for a minute. Because here's a guy that we should really, really be able to connect with. You'll understand more why in a minute if you don't already. See, Simon Peter was probably the second disciple to come to Jesus and start following him after his brother Andrew Andrew went and got him and said, come, you've got you to check this guy out and listen to what he's saying. And so they're, they're fishermen, and, and, and so they begin to follow Jesus, and they begin to listen to his voice. They begin to witness the things that he does. They begin to uh, take in the lifestyle that he's presenting. They begin to see God in kind of a different way. But I love the process that happens with Peter because it's not an instantaneous process. It's not a one and done. It's, it's not like a bolt of lightning that just knocks him down and instantly everything changes and he's a different human being. No, it's process. It's learning. It's growing. It's falling down. It's getting beat up. It's, it's then getting up and dusting himself off and repenting and crying and, and, and moving on to the next situation. And seeing how the Lord's going to show up in that one. So he, he's the guy that he, he's there when the miracles are worked out. That's a reason to believe. He's there when the lessons are taught. That's a reason to believe. He's the one who speaks out pretty boldly from time to time when Jesus asks questions. And declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
You are Messiah. You are the one who has come to save the world. You are the one that we've been looking for. Very bold statements that are symbolic of his belief and his faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But Lord knows he's got his problems. Right? So, one time they're out on a boat. A big storm comes up. And they think they're going to die. And all of a sudden they see this man come walking across the water. And they recognize that it's Jesus. And, and, and Peter stands up and Jesus beckons for him to come out to him. And so he jumps over the edge and he starts walking on the water. But all of a sudden he realizes, you know what? I didn't think this through very well. This was a little bit glamorous of an idea, but now that I'm in it, I'm scared. This kingdom thing, this huge faith, this miracle-working power, I've seen it from a distance, but now all of a sudden I'm in it, and I don't know if I'm supposed to be in it. I don't know if I'm capable. I don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I really don't know if I can do this. Can anybody in the room relate? And, and the, the, the sea foam is probably blowing and the wind and Jesus may be a little blurry out there. And, and all of a sudden, it's, it's just not as romantic as the idea was to start with. It's gotten difficult. And his faith wavers and doubt comes and all of a sudden, he's sinking. That's me and that's you. It's okay. Listen, it's okay. It's okay because even though from time to time we might sink a little bit, we might even go under for a minute, he's not going anywhere. He's not sinking because we're sinking. He's not dying because we feel like we're dying. His faith hasn't wavered just because ours has. Look, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's Christ faith we have at our fingertips. It's Christ faith we have on the tip of our tongues if we'll exercise it. Do you think that Jesus believes in God? <laughs> I don't think I've ever asked that question before. Do you think that Jesus believes that God is powerful enough to rescue us when we're sinking? Do you believe that Jesus believes that the enemy has the power to press us down to where we have no possibility of coming back up? Of course not. He's there. So Simon Peter learns a powerful lesson. And then you come to the garden. And Jesus is praying and Jesus knows what's coming and he's asked these knuckleheads to stay up and pray with him, but they can't do it. So they keep falling asleep. So he's praying on his own. And then all of a sudden when the soldiers show up and Judas has been bribed into telling uh, them where Jesus is, then Peter comes to life and he's ready to go to action. He's ready to fight somebody. But he wants to do it the wrong way. He wants to do it the Simon Peter way. He doesn't want to do it the Jesus way. And so he grabs a sword and he whacks off somebody's ear. 
And Jesus looks at him and says, Calm down. Your idea is not better than my idea. And he heals the man's ear and he goes to the cross. And when he's on trial, just before the cross, here's Peter who has just learned something in the garden about Jesus' idea who previously had learned something out on the sea in the middle of a storm, who had learned all this stuff along the way through the teaching, through witnessing miracles, through hanging out with the Lord. He had learned and he had, he had been in on it. He's one of the inner circle. Yet, when the pressure's on again, when things are risky again, he falls on his face. I don't know that man. Who, me? That's me and you. It's okay. It's okay. It's not okay, like Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go your way and don't sin anymore. Do you think she ever sinned again? I'd say probably so. But the point was, listen, you've step, you're stepping over a threshold. Now it's about transformation from the inside out. Go your way and don't intentionally, don't sin anymore on purpose. But when you sin, this same Apostle Paul said, what do you have? You have an advocate with the Father. In other words, you're not done. You're not dead. You've made a mistake, you've messed up, but you have someone like a lawyer who is arguing your case with the Father and saying, Father, listen, I know that sometimes they really behave foolishly, sometimes they really exalt their own ideas, but they do love you and they love me and they're learning and they're growing, so I'm arguing their case and I'm asking for another application of grace that I can apply to their hearts so that they can become stronger and learn from this experience that will make them better able to face the next experience. So he lies and denies and curses. And so Jesus is crucified, and he rises from the dead. And there are a few people that witnessed him walking, witnessed him personally post-resurrection. And then Peter is out on the beach, and he's cooking some fish, and Jesus comes walking up. And, and Jesus had already said, go and tell my disciples, and specifically called one name. The name of the man who had denied him and cursed and said that he never knew him. He said, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, <laughs> that I'm alive. And he comes walking down the beach and says, I'm hungry, and Peter hears his voice and his declaration is, my Lord and my God. Oh, hold on now. Peter's a backslider. Peter's a sinner. Peter's a denier. 
Peter would curse in the middle of claiming that he don't know this man. No, he looks at him and says, my Lord, you're still my Lord. You're still my God. And grace is applied and Peter is forgiven. And Peter, just like Paul, can go on for the rest of his life proclaiming the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the love of Jesus Christ that takes us into the heart of the Father. And even after all of that, he had his shortcomings and his downfalls. You know that Peter and Paul almost got into a fistfight one time, right? Here are the two main preachers of the day about to throw down in the street. They're in a disagreement. Hey, I know a pastor who chased a man out of the Winn-Dixie right here in Thomaston with a broomstick. We have our moments. I'm not giving y'all a license to go out here and act like dummies now. We don't go sin on purpose. But when we do mess up, we have an advocate and we come back and we say, my Lord and my God. I repent. I receive new application of your salvation. I am being saved day by day. One of the great, great elements, one of the great pieces of the Simon Peter story is that he leads so many people to the Lord and he pastors people and he evangelizes people and he, he writes to the churches and he encourages and he does great works. He didn't live to be very old. Most Historians and Bible scholars would say that it was somewhere between 30 and 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus that Peter was killed. Which would probably make him 60-ish. And why was he killed? He was killed because this way that he had entered into, he decided it was worth walking even when the threats came, even when things didn't look good, even when times were hard, even when he had messed up, fallen on his face, he decided it was worth walking. Because it was about a lot more than just what happens during this life on this earth. And so he too is accused. He too goes on trial. He too is convicted. And he made a request He received the death penalty and he made a request. He said, if you're going to kill me, I request that you crucify me. They said, okay. He said, but you can't crucify me the same way you crucified my Lord. I want the cross flipped upside down and inverted. I want you to crucify me hanging upside down. So, here 
you are and here I am living in 2019 in the United States of America on planet Earth. And it's a whole different culture and it's a whole different time. And not much, there's not much you could find in common with the society that Simon Peter was living in back then. But it was still people, men and women, boys and girls, getting up every morning, going to school and going to work and going to the marketplace and going to church. Communicating with each other, making decisions, cleaning house, paying bills. Some things never change. And we may not be under pressure right now concerning our faith in God. But we need to know that there are people on this planet who are. And we need to pray for them. And we need to also know that just because we are not right now under that pressure, that we may not always be exempt from that. Because if there's anything we all should be aware of without being fearful or paranoid, it is that there is an intentional movement in our world to suppress the God we serve and to suppress those who have faith in Him and who walk in the way. And it's not a movement that comes in and barnstorms the place and takes over in a day. No, it comes in in trickles year after year. Because the people with these agendas, they have a lot of patience and they don't care if it happens in their lifetime just so long as it happens. So the question for us is, what does... what? level of intensity, what level of commitment is there in our own walk in the way? If it came to that, because we pretty much have an easy life. Now, I was sitting yesterday morning, I think, in the, in the sunroom off the back of my house looking out over the pasture, reading and stuff, and uh, I just thought, you know what? Your life is just way too easy. And if you're going to start comparing with the way a lot of people have to live around the world, we all have a pretty easy life. But we should not measure the level of our commitment, the intensity of our passion towards this walk in the kingdom way by how easy our lives are. We should approach it as if somebody could walk in our house tomorrow and say, you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ or you die. Because if we do not approach it that way, could we handle it if it ever came to that? The answer is probably no. And I don't know. I don't know. If they came in the door right now, and grabbed me and dragged me somewhere and said, hey, it's reject his name, reject this lifestyle, or be crucified upside down on the public square. Which one do you want? I don't know. Grandma says I do know. 
These things are not easy. But we have to approach this kingdom way, not casually. No, not sucking our pacifiers and feeling like it's all about us and and that nothing bad's ever going to happen. I'm not trying to preach a message that's going to make you paranoid or fearful. This is not about that. This is about pressing on in a positive way to make sure that our growth and our maturity in the kingdom is going to place us right where we need to be when hardship and adversity come, whatever it looks like. Whether it's a shortage of money one month or whether it's a death in the family or whether it's an illness that we didn't see coming, whether it's a rebellious child or whether it's that a system rises up and says to us, you cannot worship that God anymore or we will kill you. Whatever it is. So, I think and hope that just about everybody in the room has had an encounter. I think and hope that just about everybody in the room has stepped over the threshold. And now my hope and my prayer is that every morning when you get up, you have a renewed commitment to it, a renewed mindset about it, that it doesn't get stale, that it doesn't get old. This, this scripture that I shared with you, it's another one of those, like I've said many times, that it's so familiar to us that perhaps we lose the meaning. Perhaps we don't pay enough attention to the specific phrasing and the language that's in there because we've heard it so often. It's a very familiar passage from scripture. But we need to make sure we really pay attention day by day to what it's saying. I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. We need to make sure that we understand and we declare that the life that we now live in the body, this body and in His body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. I don't think we could go wrong with making that part of what we say every morning when we sit with him so that it's in the forefront of our thinking. Well, we're leading up to Easter, and this is all part of it, and reflecting on who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he's got down the road for us. But we're never going to know what he has down the road for us tomorrow until we travel the road he has for us today. That's the process. Listen, I'm asking you today, do not make a commitment to make sure you go to heaven. You may have never heard a preacher say that to you ever before in your life. Do not make a commitment to go to heaven. Make a commitment to win the victory, to win your salvation today. And at the end of the day, raise your hands up to him and say, To God be the glory, he saved me today. And when you get up tomorrow morning, make a commitment to win your victory in the kingdom tomorrow. And at the end of tomorrow night, raise your hands and give him thanks and say, to God be the glory that he saved me today.
And if you do that, you've got no worries about heaven. But if you say, it's my goal to make it to heaven, and you don't consider the process to get there, you're going to have a really, really tough time. Amen? Y'all stand up with me. Father, thank you for crucifixion. The opportunity to be killed to myself so that I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. Thank you that the life we now live in the body, even in this old flesh body. But more than that, in the body of Christ. In the body of Christ. We live by faith. You are God. You are God. You are worthy. And we commit one more time to have no other gods before you. To exalt you and to look to you and to hear from you. Thank you for your revelation. A little bit more of revelation of who you are today. Thank you that the table was set through worship and you have fed us. And now as we go out from here, show us opportunities to feed others to pour into them, to serve them, to love them, to give. Do your work in us, and we'll witness the work you do in others through us. In your name we pray. Amen.